Good afternoon, everyone, and um, welcome back to the Inspire series, season three, episode three. Um, and this time it's going to be truly special. It's a topic I'm quite passionate about, and I really love the way that it's been set up, but I'm not going to jump into that just yet. Um, I'm just going to start with the normal intro. I'm not playing a song just for the minute. Uh, we're going to be doing an intro song before David gets on to actually say something. Um, so all I'll say now is if you've got questions, please do, as always, put it in the Q&A. We really want it to be in interactive. And if you put it in the chat, I'll try to pick those up as well. It's can't guarantee that, but I definitely see them in the Q&A. With that, Mary Lynn. Great. Good evening, everybody. Hi, my name is Mary Lynn Roth, and I lead IOCO's digital solutions team in Kateng. I've got great pleasure in welcoming you to the episode seven of I Inspire series. Last week, we heard from Andrew Wood, who was the CEO of The Unlimited, um, and we heard all about their very unconventional ways and about their deeply ingrained purpose. One thing that resonated with me specifically was that there's a reality that we need to make profits and we need to be efficient in order to be able to make a difference, but the real crux of it comes down to purpose. If you missed last week's episode, please take a moment to watch the full webinar recording on ioko.tech, our website. Stay tuned this evening as Colin Isles speaks to David Katz, founder and CEO of The Plastic Bank. I'm an avid recycler, so I'm intrigued to hear how he's recycled 1 billion plastic bottles and created work for 21,000 people over the years. You're welcome to post your questions or comments in the chat um, for our speaker. Um, as there'll be a question and answer session towards the end of the hour. I'd now like to hand over to Colin Isles of Innovation Catalysts, who will facilitate our conversation. Colin. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, again, uh, welcome everyone. I'm going to start with a short video just for 30 seconds. I think you'll work out why when I hand over to David. Now, uh, hopefully this is playing if I click the play button. There we go. bottles sitting on a wall look to the sea there's a million more David welcome uh, thank you very much Colin good morning from Vancouver it's still a little bit early here I've got my cup of coffee and I'm here in mind and spirit good morning good morning now we're going to be uh, talking about plastic bank um, clearly there's going to be a, a, a strong focus on what's in the name why about plastic and what's the part about the banking that goes with it um, and I also want to intersperse it with, um, get, you know, getting your experiences on what it's actually like to go and create something like Plastic Bank, how that can be taken away into the corporate environment. So sure. we're going to try to blend those uh, two pieces. Um, and I do want to get your story as well about how you started it and sort of what your background was and what your inspiration was to actually go through into this. But I actually want to start in the, in the middle, if we can, before we get into too much detail about, you know, your history. It's 2020, 2021. We're here today. Okay, what is Plastic Bank? We are affectionately communicated as the world's largest chain of stores for the poor. It's the ultra poor, those who make less than a dollar, dollar fifty a day, where everything in the store is available to be purchased using plastic garbage or what was considered garbage. I'm most proud that we offer school tuition and medical insurance 
cooking fuel, cell phone minutes, Wi-Fi, everything the true poor need, need, but struggle to afford, now available using plastic that would otherwise be flowing into the ocean as money. Inside of all of it is a blockchain-based banking application. The heart of it all, our alchemy platform that provides a space for our collector communities to earn financial inclusion. The more material they return, the more frequently they return the material, the higher the quality of the material, the quality of their social circle. They in end earn credit worthiness, a credit rating, the ability for immediacy of loan and financial product. We have the ability to have an asset, a bank account, they have safety from robbery. Many of the women have safety from husbands. It's not drank. So we've created a monetary system that uses plastic as the input. So can we deep dive into that and maybe just go through the steps that you've formed in this actual ecosystem so that uh, people can understand how it all hangs together, who the different stakeholders are that are involved in this? Sure. Well, I'll take you through a story like uh, like Lisa or one of our collectors, like you can see on my background. We love to talk a story about Lisa. Lisa survived the 2010 Haitian earthquake as a widow and had a few children and was struggling, of course, in, in, in her interaction with uh, the plastic bank. She's been able to really earn a steady, reliable income. And her day starts by taking her kids to school. She drops the kids off at school. And then as a collective, it turns Turns out it's a very social activity where her and other moms go out and collect material from, you know, from business to business or door to door or, you know, places where it would bef before it enters the waterway. She collects the material during the day. She brings it back to one of our, our locations in Port-au-Prince where she's recognized, welcomed. The material is then accepted, weighed. Uh, we check it for quality to make sure there's no rocks and other things that may influence the weight of the material. The material is then given a value. It's transferred into her bank account. So now she has a digital bank account, digital ledger. Everyone's agreed on the price. She has that. Now it's available for her. And um, she has a variety of opportunities from there. She can either have uh, the cash immediately, or she can buy things in a location. She can save it and use it in other locations as well. Or she could transfer that value to, let's say, her mother who may live across the town. So her mother can now buy things at the store. That's the basic process there. The material at the location is segregated by color and type. We remove labels and caps and rings and other things. So we add more value to it. It's uh, amalgamated there. And then it's shipped to one of our recycling processing partners who then either bales the material in its segregated form or will flake the material and, and, and wash the material and get it ready for export. Whenever we can in country, we want to use the material in country, we want to add as much value into the hands of the population. That's what has to occur. But in Haiti, there's not always that opportunity using this example. So we would ship that material to one of our customers processing facilities. Let's say it's uh, like Essie Johnson or a Henkel or something like that, where they then buy that material as social plastic. So it would go to one of their processors, one of their bottlers, the bottler would receive the material and in the end form it into a new bottle that would then be filled with a shampoo or a cleaning product and make its way onto the shelves of stores around the world. That's as simple as that. 
We work with a local ecosystem. We work with a local population, local recyclers, local staff, and we add value to a material that was otherwise discarded and seen as worthless. Not just worthless, but it has a profound, you know, derogatory effect in their economy and their environment. So we take something that was a plight and to make it worth, in a nutshell. Okay, so we've got the main players. We've got, you know, the people on the ground, uh, quite often impoverished, who uh, almost become the, the, I guess, the collectors. All right, the plastic. They've given an opportunity where they can trade plastic for material goods, which we can chat about the selection and how that's got set up in a minute. There's a price point for that. Yep. Where they're dropping it off, there's a mechanism for them to be incentivized and then to make sure that that gets taken to the processing centers where plastic can be sorted and turned into pellets. Yep. And then there's another side where there's the guys that are then buying that bulk plastic pellet uh, set to go and convert it, depending on the type of plastic into whatever it might be, bottles or, or bike seats or everything else. So it's, it's a beautiful ecosystem chain um, that you've actually created there. Um, how do you get the likes of the kind of uh, Johnsons that you mentioned, you know, involved in this and, the, and these different, but in fact, let's go through them sort of line by line, but let's start on that kind of uh, processing part. How do you go and find the people that are interested in picking up on this and they believe in what you're actually showing them that it, it can actually work? You know, like many of our, many of our collectors, yeah, I, I, I love the expression that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. We can't convince anyone to do anything. When we began this in 2013, I was still running into people who didn't believe that there was plastic in the ocean. They couldn't conceive of it, so they couldn't believe it. And that was prevalent within large corporation as well. People were, in, at the time, heard of this Pacific garbage patch uh, this gyre, and they <clears throat> thought it was an island of plastic and it was far away and not affecting them. So at the time as well, I mean, that was a challenge as well, trying to engage people to be a part of a solution that they didn't need, that they didn't believe needed to occur. Well, certainly finding those organizations who are passionate today that want to make change in the world is what we are. We're a for-profit business with a sales force that is out engaging corporations globally that want to participate in a blue ocean strategy, pun intended, and <clears throat> a blue ocean strategy that allows them to be able to have a better activation, better opportunity to communicate with the next generation of consumer. Because what's driving it today, Colin, is, is this, you know, colloquially expressed Greta generation. This generation that, that sees through this thin veil, this communication of sustainability, the communication that, oh, I'll do less damage this year than I did last year, that's thin and, and weak and, and inauthentic. They see that. And what they're looking for is the regeneration. And what we are entering now is the regeneration economy. That is the blue ocean strategy. If you don't want to swim in the Red Sea of competition, your opportunities to show up and show that you're repairing the damage that's been done on the earth. And there is no shortage of damage that's been done. And there's no shortage of opportunity in that space. And so what we provide our customers, this brand activation, is an opportunity to exhibit authentically, transparently, that they're cleaning the world and stopping the ocean from being killed. That's the opportunity. So now we're a branding and an engagement and a marketing opportunity. 
And that is where our brand, Social Plastic, and we're the plastic bank that offers social plastic. That's our global trademark. So social plastic is a material whose value is transferred truly through the lives of the people who encounter it, whether you be rich or poor. Because if you go to the, uh, uh, a, you know, I, I happen to have this here, but this is a, a bottle, a Henkel product, Nature Box. It's one of their um, natural products on the shelves of, of Europe. It's got our, our logo on it, but this material, um, almost 100% of it. Now there's a little bit of a color tint, so it's not exactly 100%, but this material was collected by the hands of the poor in the Philippines that collected it, returned it, and their lives changed. So when you as a consumer go to a shelf and you pick that bottle up off that shelf, you are in fact working with the world's poor to collect that material, keeping it from going into the ocean and changing their lives simultaneously. So there's a powerful, powerful story in that bottle. Yeah, very powerful. What, what are the numbers um, that are sitting at the moment? Let's put this in perspective in terms of the amount of plastic that has now been collected through Plastic Bank over the last couple of years. Well, we're, we're just announcing that we've collected a thousand billion bottles, thousand million bottles, rather, thousand million bottles. We still have, we still have billions and billions to go, of course, and it's just a drop in the, drop in the ocean, another pun intended, and, and, and there's a lot to do. Now, we've had to create you know, so I've been self-funded to get to where we are. So I've really had to create a global organization. We began in Haiti, then Philippines, then Indonesia, then Brazil, then Egypt, which is our entry into Africa. We have Thailand coming, but now I think more importantly, we have Cameroon to tackle uh, Eastern Africa. And then with our relationship with SC Johnson, we're going to uh, Kenya and uh, Tanzania. And then we're gonna be looking at uh, Uganda, Rwanda. So that's, that's our entry into Africa, and uh, that's, that's what's occurring. So, um, so, so a billion, a billion yeah. bottles worth of uh, plastic, which is yeah. um, thousands and thousands of tons, yeah. in, a, in a weight measure. Yeah. Um, I saw yeah. on your website, it's just under, as an approximation, 50 billion straws. Uh, to try to put it in a different flavor. So, so it's, it's already having a vast impact. I know that there's lots more to go and there's plenty of plastic to go and collect. What is it, what is it like sitting there on the numbers side? How is it looking on the uh, financials? Because you said at the start, which might surprise people, you guys are for profit. Yeah, right? This isn't a charity. Need to be a for profit solution. We need to create a solution for the world that drives additional competition. We need to have more people enter into a space that monetizes material resources, critically important. As, as important of a mission as it is to prohibit the flow of plastic from entering the ocean, it's as equally as important to launch another army of entrepreneurs who want to do the same thing. You know, the core value of the organization is to gather. Well, there's a double entendre of the gather. It's, of course, gather the material, but it's to gather people together, gather organizations together. It's to gather the world together and give them the conduit to make change. That's what we're doing in the end. So, yeah, we're a for-profit solution. I think we're doing, we're doing fairly well. Uh, you know, we're anticipating contract value this year around 75 million, and our customers continue to in grow with us, increase with us. Um, our customers use from you know, the half billion to $6 billion worth of material every year. They make commitments to using more and more recycled content all the time. They're making more and more commitments to use recycled content or social plastic all the time. So there, there is a giant uh, opportunity in the space. It's, you know, around a trillion dollar market, the virgin plastic market 
around a trillion dollars annually. There, there is just a, a, a tremendous opportunity in what we're doing as a business. Now it's all timing, of course. Now I began early. It began. I led the way as well. I, powerful communication about turning off the tap and stopping plastic from entering the ocean. We communicated with consumers, with, with, with you know, with activists. We, we've created a, a movement in the world, and those organizations want to partner with us. We've had to do what we've had to do as an organization. And I couldn't, as a communicator, can't convince anyone against their will, but we can give a paradigm. Yeah, yeah. So that's, those are, I mean, those are huge numbers in all honesty. I mean, 75 million of committed contracts. Can you just talk through that number? I, I don't see it as a big number. Right? Isn't that crazy? I do not see that as a big number at all. In the well, consideration. The next, the next I see it as a good number, though, is the, the amount of volume, you know, that you're actually processing through. I mean, you said, what was it, half a billion, six billion dollars worth that are actually being effectively purchased through the ecosystem. Have I got that right? Uh, through the ego, six not six billion dollars. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what number you've what you, where you've gotten that, Colin. So, if I look at the if I look at the people actually purchasing the pellets, can you give us a, a an estimate about how much is actually being spent? You know, through that ego. Oh yeah, no, I understand. No, no, for sure. No, that's a whole different conversation. Of course, that has tremendous added value in the product itself. I can't commit the exact dollar value, but powerful powerful multiplier for our customers and our brands as well who are all experiencing profound sales increases in competitive markets by using a social material they're they're partnering with us because of that and they're doing very very well in the communication of that and the engagement of that now that bottle i showed you that just that our logo on that has brought me countless just countless interactions with society and people and people who want to partner the awareness is, 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 is hitting the shelves. And in, in North America, there's an iconic brand called Windex. It's a window cleaner, something I think like Mr. Muscles in the UK or something like that. But there, there's, we're, we're making our way. This, this is a Hugo Boss jersey that I'm wearing. This has our material in it as well. Um, you know, we're beautiful partnerships with the likes of Coca-Cola and Unilever and Procter and & Gamble and Cody and, and many of the world's largest fast moving consumer goods companies. Beautiful new activation with Gillette, with a brand that they call Planet Kind, that they built just around sustainability, that every, every time you buy one of their razors, it's extracting additional 10 bottles with us. The handle itself, 100% recyclable, all the packaging is made for recycled content. That's the direction that it's going in. That's where it's going. So it strikes me that it's been incredibly successful. How has that growth been since 2013? Is this sort of like linear where, you know, you've made steady progress over these things? Are you starting to see yourself in a near of a curve now where this is just going to scale even faster? Yeah, we're, we're scaling very quickly. We, we can't, um, can't keep up with the demand for staff. We're, we're having some challenges hiring the best people, of course. It's the time that it takes. It's, you know, it's this, this, this conundrum of being in the execution, making change, growing, authenticating the digital platform or execution on the ground, country expansion, branding, the sales, all of those things. While we have to match and grow the demand, while we have to grow the organization, all, I mean, there's a, it's a business and it's really beautiful. And the beautiful part for me is I get to become the CEO of an organization that gets to do that. It's a journey, not a destination. And in the process, I get to become that kind of awakened, conscious human in the world. And so for me, I'm, I, you know, although I'm in a giant rush because the ocean cannot wait, cannot wait. We need more action faster now. And I can, and I can, and I can give myself to the process and understanding that it's occurring without going crazy. 
uh, which is which is easy for me to do sometimes. Yeah. So how did it how did it get started then? Because um, okay, let's go back to two thousand and thirteen, when that was the first kind of date where I could see. I think that was when you uh, formed the company. But the years leading up to that, what were you doing before, and how did you actually fall into this or drive yourself into this? Well, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've never had a job. I, I once was a waiter, but I was working for tips. And so the better I served my customers and, you know, the more value I provided, the better I would do. So that I believe was entrepreneurship as well. But outside of that, I've always just been creating. That is my core values to create. And, and the business that I had previous to this was, was in telematics or GPS tracking. Uh, back in 2000, we developed a, a product that would be installed inside vehicles that let our customers companies who owned electrician, you know, electrical plumbers, those see where all their staff are alive, be able to dispatch and manage. I was acquired in, in, in 2013 and that's ultimately what's helped fund to where we are. So growing my entrepreneurial experience to be in this place, that still paled in comparison. It was nothing, it was a, it was a craft in comparison to where we are today, build a, building a multinational, um, you know, dealing with the world's largest organization. So, so that's a bit of a preface. I grew up on an island on the very west coast of Canada called Vancouver Island. I grew up in a city called Victoria, a beautiful, picturesque place. My playground was the ocean. My house was right across the street from the beach. That's where I played, just as my entirety of my youth. And out of the gift of, 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 of life, I got to walk a beach to go to school uh, under cold Pacific ocean, but I get to walk that beach. I would be in that beach. I'd play in that beach. It's like maybe 500 meters. And I began witnessing the degradation of the ocean 35 years ago, 40 years ago. I began watching what we called at the time, you know, we would go beach combing, like, let's go walk the beach and see if we can find something. And so we'd find something thinking it was some foreign thing coming from somewhere. And then I just recognized over the course of time that freak man this is just like people's garbage washing up on the beach and i began seeing more and more and more and so i was able to witness that early in my life that degradation now my soul lives at the ocean's edge where the where the ocean meets the shore the lap of the wave the sun the wind that is my soulful place so when i travel that's where i am soulfully connected to as well the, I, I dive i fish i sail i boat i play in the ocean it is where we are all from so i can so see where you got your purpose from and presumably the payout that you got when you sold your business was significant enough that you could actually go and refocus on areas that you were genuinely interested in now what was it that brought you to this idea of, of Plastic Bank and how you're going to create this ecosystem? Um, it wasn't significant enough because I even had to use a very small inheritance to make payroll at the time as well. So I had to throw everything at this. I had to do everything, sell everything, be, do all of it to be where I am today. And once I made the commitment to be where I am today, I was committed to it. And it wasn't an option to fail. It's another, it's another conversation. When we make a decision, what occurs in making a decision. So I got caught up on that call. What was your question? <laughs> How did you come up with the idea of Plastic Bank? Well, I think that was all part of it was this necessity, like it had to occur. And, and so I was, I, was, I was looking for a solution. You know, it's, it's, it's not, you don't, you know, the saying that, you'll well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, that's not the case. It's what, what you see is what you believe. 
That is the way it works. It's what you already believe that what you see. So I went believing that there was a solution. So I've been looking for passionately in the exploration of discovery of solution for what was occurring. I took myself to uh, an event in Silicon Valley, the thing called Singularity University. Uh, Peter Diamandis, Ray Cruzwell, like just a remarkable thought leadership platform for a week for all these world leaders. And it was during an, a 3D printing seminar, additive manufacturing, that I was able to witness this single long strand of plastic be formed into a plastic belt. So they exhibited the belt, fascinating, it had the 70s look to it. And I'm like, okay, well, how much did the belt, how much was the belt sell for? Well, you know, forget it was $70, $80. And I said, well, how much was the material? Well, $10. And it was in that very moment that I could feel the hair in the back of my neck stand up because what I had, what had been presented to me, what I what occurred for me, that it was not the plastic that was determining the value, it was the shape of the plastic that was determining the value. It was the shape. And so the shape and the value determination was inside of us. It wasn't an external problem, it was an internal paradigm is that if I can change the paradigm of the bottle to now look something different, to be something different, that could change the paradigm inside of the mind. And so that is when now that plastic bottle becomes school tuition, when that gives you access to insurance, when that gives you access to a small loan, when that gives you savings, when that gives you hope, that is the paradigm that we provide into society. That's what we do. So how did you start the first experiment? Because a lot of people on the call will know Singularity and Abundance 360s, uh, popular yeah. here in South Africa. Yeah. And um, but my experience is most people that go into those type of events, the vast majority walk out there, they're blown away by technology and the things that are happening. Um, but very few actually do what you did and take the concepts, that curiosity, that passion that you had and start running your first experiments and, and prototypes. What were your first experiments that you did? and, and did you just decide immediately just go and do it? Or was it like a journey six months, seven months after seeing these kind of, you know, amazing tech demonstrations? Well, there's, a, there's so much in that. There's so much in that. There's so much in that. Knowing and not doing is like not knowing. I'd say it's worse. It's treasonous. It's treasonous to know something and then not to be in the action or implementation of it when you know that it could have profound impact your life and other people's lives. Treasonous. But I get it. I get the ego mind. I get the thoughts that I'm not good enough. What if I fail? What if it doesn't work? What will people think of me? All of that, which I can assure you is what occurred to me when they had the idea of the plastic bag. They had these three thoughts. I, I love communicating this element because this was, I think, is the leading element. This is, this is why I'm where I am today. Right, the first thought of the plastic bank, oh my goodness, money for the world. If I could have the poor sea plastic as money, it could be stores and people could use it. And a may or remarkable, I had the hair stick up on the back of my neck. I knew that that, oh, that was like, oh, that's powerful. I was visceral. It was like this, that could happen for the world. Oh, it's amazing. And then the second louder thought was, David, who are you? Like, are you kidding me? You're like some dude from Vancouver. What do you know about creating some global organization where you're going to, you know, we're well, going to create a monetary system. You're going to like engage with the world's biggest brands. You're going to build a supply chain out of the areas of the most illiterate, scarce, violent in the world. You're going to go and communicate with the abject poor to have them collect material. You're going to create who, what? No, not possible. 
which is where I want to communicate that the idea of the plastic bag came in the very third thought. And what I always want to communicate, it was it came in a moment of consciousness. It was a quiet, soft voice, not sure where it occurred, how it occurred, but it just, it, it was a reassurance. It said, David, you don't need to be the person that could do any of that, but you get to choose to slowly, slowly become the person who could. And that was, that was the relevant moment for me. That, that's when the plastic bank began because I didn't need to have it all figured out. I didn't need to know how to do it. I didn't need to know how to go and engage big brands. I didn't need to know any of it. I needed to begin and embark on a journey that would lead me to where I am today and where I will be. Because most people who attend a Buzz 360 or some other event, who cares what it is, whether it be a Joe Dispenza, leave and they don't actually, are not in the, in the, in the application, implementation of it. How many amazing ideas have been lost in the world? How many world-changing, humanity-changing opportunities have existed on the planet that were struck down by the fear of the ego mind that said, you're not enough to do that? And it was lost. And I don't want to communicate anything. It's that that is the paradigm. It's the becoming. And then that way, that is the journey of self. That is the, the consciousness, that is the awakening of the soul. It is about being and then stepping forward to an unlimited opportunity, being truly connected to the abundance of the universe and creating, and that is authentic leadership. So how did you run your first experiments then? Because you've had these kind of epitomies that you're thinking about and you're running with it. Um, now you want to go and get started. Was it literally jump on a plane? I mean, because you've got to go and test. Yeah. You don't need to know. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we had to implement you know, but at first we gave ourselves, we gave ourselves a brand, we gave ourselves, you know, a community, we began to communicate as, you know, back before we really had to pay, we launched little campaigns on Facebook, we, we gained a movement, we had assurances, we talked it out loud, we spoke with everyone, we, we became familiar with the conversation, I understood more clearly what it was, I began to communicate it from its existence, I was able to get the feedback from society, you say, oh, what about this, what about that, so I was able to formulate, and then, you know, at, at the Singularity University, I met a, I met a fellow there who was a, a Peruvian and industrialist, he said, oh, David, if you come to Peru, I'll help fund it, the whole thing, well, fantastic, well, great, Lorenzo, amazing. So we went to Peru, we went to Lima, we were there, we did the whole thing, we, we, we began, but of course, did Lorenzo ever fund it? No, he disappeared, but there I found myself in Lima, you know, with some staff trying to implement, do what we can, and we learned our lessons. And we learned what it was like to, you know, you know where, where we needed to only partner, where we didn't need to come in and do anything, that there was, you know, there are the nucleuses of what we're doing around the world. There are uh, diverse communities that are supporting the collector communities in the world that we need to just build a business system. We needed to build a process. We needed to build the authenticity, the digitization of it. That's what we got to do. We got to overlay that. So we learned a tremendous amount of lessons and that through our communication and through what we did was reached out by someone from in Haiti that was trying to create something called Ramasse Lejean. It's called picking up money in Haitian Creole. It's like, oh, this is familiar. This is exactly what we're trying to do. They were a nonprofit going broke. And I went to Haiti and it's like, oh my goodness, there's already an ecosystem here. There was already like 
15 locations or something like that. So we took it over for a dollar and began to implement business process, began to hire properly, began to work with our processors, began to work with customers, develop the story, develop the marketing, develop all of that. Because we continue to use our word to create a vision. And then when that vision came to fruition, we were able to exhibit that to the world. It gave it more affirmation. More people began accepting what we were doing. It became real. We began learning through the daily implementation through all of our mistakes. How many um, pivots would you say you took in those early couple of years as you tested different models? Uh, I don't know. I pivot all the time. I know, yeah. Uh, I, mean, I pivot every day. So. I, I wouldn't be able to communicate. I would only I would only want to express to anyone that may be listening that that has an idea that wants to change the world that it's all about pivoting. It's all about feedback. I mean, that's Al Reese and Lean Startup. It's about you know it's about getting this feedback all the time. But oh, now what? Now what? What's that with a customer? How does that work? There's always an uncovery. I don't know. I mean, we we're so ignorant. We're just so ignorant. All of us is, but yet we want to communicate that we know everything. It's remarkable. You don't know what you don't know. How is it possible that you can predict everything? You can't. What you can do is be an implementation to take feedback. And you can see which a, was, have resistance. Was, was there a moment as you, you pivoted? I still, um, this is very unfair. I'm still imagining you in Peru or somewhere, uh, literally behind the counter in the bottle collection point, um, receiving and then handing out whatever at that point you decided was the, the effect. That was paper, just straight money as well at the time. And when we first started, it was all you know analog scales. There was always room for theft. You know, we had to learn, you know, you know, I communicated like we check for quality, like, oh, I didn't realize at first that people would be putting rocks in their bottles so that they can make an extra few pennies. Well, of course that was occurring. Well, that would, I mean, that was a yield loss. I mean, that was money losing when people put, I mean, it's low margin has to be low margin to, to make it accessible to the industry of the world. So, we, you know, we've got to, so that type of thing, the additional, you know, vapor that's inside the moisture that, that are inside the bottles, different types of materials, what is occurring that oh, we had to learn about plastics? I learned, oh, I mean, like, how many pivots have I had to have? Like, what? Were, were you actually there in, and actually working with the counter, with the guys in those areas? Was it that hands on in, when you started? In Haiti, of course, in Haiti, of course. Of course, in Haiti, of course. Of course. And, and for me, soulfully, you know, I'm a humanitarian. Like, this is, you know, for me, it's like, I want to be with the people. I want to be with our communities. I want to be with, I want to be with those who are aspiring, those who are, those who are, you know, the, the meek, the eager, the ones who want to make change in their own lives, the resourceful, that's where I find my passion blossoming. It's when I'm with a human, when I'm with a person. So of course it's those areas. And that's where I get the feedback from as well. Like, what is it like to collect? How is it collecting? How much can you collect? All of those things we would learn. Of course, we had to be there. With and how many doors got slammed in your face? as you were going through this journey was, I mean, were people receptive to the idea? You're passionate about it and you're certainly different to the normal. So were people kind of, oh, nah, it's a nice idea. We love the theme, but you know, David, no. Or were you actually finding quite, especially with the big corporates, were they quite receptive? Nope. <laughs> they suck. They're all evil. And how did but you carry on pursuing that? Because you knew at the time that you had to have their support in the network for this to work. You needed the balance sheet and the and the well, money to be fed to the system. At first, I really thought, oh my goodness, though there's some great global multinationals that exhibit sustainability. And I thought, oh, I'll go target them and they'll they'll naturally want to buy the material. I'll I'll spend the time with them. Um, 
you know, I, you know, there's, I, I've learned about the inauthenticity of, of, of publicly traded corporations. I've learned about the inauthenticity of those. I've learned about how saying and doing are two different things. I've spent, I spent maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars trying to court Unilever, trying to be with them. All the times that I spent in, in, in Rotterdam and in London and Port Sunlight and all of these places trying to chase them, they had no intention of partnering with us, none, none. In the end, you did get some big names. I mean, you mentioned blockchain. That was a partnership that you ran with IBM, wasn't it? Yeah, IBM was uh, really instrumental in the architecture um, of the platform. They've been inc incredibly generous with us. They've been true supporters, true partners with us. Um, you know, the, our platform runs the Hyperledger fabric. It's the IBM blockchain uh, fabric that, you know, that ultimately provides reliability, consistency, authenticity. We're not a cryptocurrency, we're a fiat backed token. So it's a utility token that is fiat backed so that anytime that we provide a token, which is ultimately just a transition of value, there's already money in it. So it's already banked and then transacted and transferred immediately through the blockchain. So we don't have that authenticity. We also transact in US dollar. So US dollar equivalents or collectors in, in their communities where they have some deflation of their currency, they can actually have a savings account and actually benefit from the appreciated value of, of, of the US dollar. So there's, there's, there's power in that as well. So those are, you know, that I elicit as just yet an additional benefit for the collector because we have to continue changing the perceived value because even in poverty, there's there there's allowed the base level of poverty the base of the base level of poverty are those who collect materials from the streets though that is you're poor but then you are super poor and you were frowned upon and you you are ostracated from society when you're collecting material and that's what we have to battle that is the biggest battle it's about changing the paradigm and having people come out of their mind's eye and, and we do that by really increasing the value of the material to such an extent that everyone's looking at it and going, oh, hold on a second. This is just smart. This isn't like, you know, you know looking for scraps. This is actually successful. And so then it becomes an opportunity for more in society. The guys that are, you know, massive believers in things like Bitcoin, what was your experience? Because you've got multiple ways, multiple methods of payment, you know, for these guys. So you've effectively on, on the one hand, you've got a barter system. Yeah, it's all transacted. It all has to be transacted through the application first. Nothing occurs without it. We have to validate the collector. We have to ensure that they're of age. We look for aberration. We look for people who bring in large volumes of material. That might flag us to think that they're employing others. If they are, great. But are they employing children? Not so great. So we have to advocate on behalf of our customers' brands. Could you imagine what it would be like if Coca-Cola all of a sudden was collecting material and it was collected by children? That's can't happen. So that's our realm. So everything has to be transacted through the application. And then there's an immediacy of barter, we call it that, because they can transact the value immediately. But I think more appropriately, like, you know, within Indonesia, within Haiti, we have 105 schools just in Haiti. So in Haiti, where schools become collection locations. So the school, so we teach six, seven, eight, nine-year-old children to go to talk about the environment, talk about ocean stewardship, talk about marine debris, talk about, you know, successful handling of materials. They go home, inspire their parents and tell their parents, mom, you can't do that anymore. And the family brings all of the material back to the school. And the school becomes the collection location. So they weigh it. The family gets an account as well. They benefit, but the school benefits too. The school makes a little bit of money. 
And then of course the children learn stewardship over the environment. And I can't help but think that at some point, a child will at some element of life will look back and say, oh my goodness, what ended my poverty and the family poverty was my stewardship of the environment. That's the paradigm that we're leading. That's what we need to change for the world. And so when you buy a bottle of something of social plastic in it, that's what you're participating in. It's not an option. So I get, I get that, but that wasn't quite my question. <laughs> oh, it was, I, I just ramble on, Colin, forgive me. <laughs> I know, I'm totally getting used to that. What I was interested in is whether the, uh, the collectors are more interested in some of the, the bartering offerings that you give. So... Um, perhaps you could just let's put that in context. What are you actually offering guys aside from cash when they go and drop off the bottles? It's, yeah, they, they love cash is always cash is king. But you know what occurs in in the Philippines, for instance, it gets transacted into a PayMe account, kind of like a like an Impesa or or you know an additional digital currency that they can transact and buy immediate cell phone minutes with and other things. Or with some of our collectors, they would get like a prepaid credit card or a debit card. And they go to the bank machine to take it out. Uh, so the collector, it, it depends. I mean, they're, you know, school tuition is super important. Insurance packages are super important. And, uh, and basically people want to pay for their kids to go to school and eat. I mean, it's not, you know, rice in the Philippines, super important. Rice, basic foodstuffs, super important. Vegetables, super important. But so many stories, you know, just during COVID, you know, we've got beautiful stories of our collector communities. We, we had a big increase in collectors because so many people were out of work. We were able to work with S.E. Johnson and, and the government of, of, of the Philippines to deem recycling an essential service. So we were able to deem that. So very early on, we were able to say people won't eat if they can't recycle. So they... Well, David, they, how did... How, so look, I want to get to that, the, the point of the question, because this is what fascinates me. How have you managed to get these collectors, uh, many mm -hmm. of whom I can guess uh, have probably never heard of blockchain? And are, yeah, we can talk uh, about blockchain. Very, they know bank account. They know bank, bank account. Yeah. They know your cell phone. You're saying, drop off this, and I'm going to give you this fiat back token on my app. We don't, yeah, we, never, we don't confuse them. We never talk about that ever, ever. Of course. But what was it when they come in? You know, because there's got to be some uh, level of trust from their yeah, side. The application process. And many don't have phones and all the rest of it. Of course. There's a communication. And the offer to them is, is sort of, it's almost not the currency that's interesting for them. It's the fact that you've got a menu of items in there, which they can immediately realize if they wanted to, yeah. which gives yeah. them the confidence to accept the token. Yeah. Like within, within representation. Totally. Like with Indonesia, in, in Indonesia, there's a, there's a company called Gojek. Have you ever heard of Gojek? No. Gojek's like the, like Uber, Uber of Indonesia. They're, they're, there was, I think the first Indonesian unicorn. Um, and within their ecosystem, set aside the delivery network and the million drivers and all of those things, there's a whole network inside of it. The, the, the Gojek wallet can be transacted with, I think, something like 200,000 different stores, like all restaurants, all kinds of stuff. So we have, through the API, for or the collector community, they all know Gojek. So I didn't need to teach them about Gojek. They just know Gojek. They just know that there's an opportunity in Gojek. The community talks about, it. oh, now when I bring you the plastic, it's Gojek money. Oh, that's simple. It's not complicated. Like it really, we just go look at the base of it and go, oh, okay, where's the common denominator here? What does it look like? What would what would that look like? What would it be easy with our PayMaya? You know, PayMaya and, and the telecom providers there, there, you know, there's you know, there's there, it's just it's it's ubiquitous. Everyone knows them. So when we say, Oh yeah, PayMaya, oh okay, PayMaya, great. 
Fascinating. All right. Let's talk about South Africa now. This was one of the things that I was excited about as well, because you listed, you know, what's it now going on 10 plus countries you're either in or very close to being in. Yeah. Yeah. What would we need to do if we wanted to set up something like that in SA? Because the stats I saw aren't encouraging. Apparently, SA is one of the 20th worst polluters in plastic in the world, which I found um, quite remarkable, considering it, it, it just blew my mind that that was the case. I would have never it should imagined. Be, should it be remarkable when we look at the poverty rates? When we look at when we look at the conditions that people live in townships, we, is that is it really surprising? No, it's not surprising at all. Why is that remarkable? Of course it is. To look around, you see poverty, you see pollution. That's the way it works. Okay, look at the SDGs, these 17 Sustainable Development Goals. 17 of them, one to 17. What people don't are not aware of is that they're in order. It's an order. You're not going to get to life below the sea. You're not going to get to gender inequality. You're not going to get to those unless you help fix number one, which is poverty, end poverty. You won't end hunger if you don't end poverty. You won't end access to education. You won't provide that unless you end poverty. So let's spend time there. Look around everybody. So what would we need to do to get started? Because at the end of the day, if we put it, if we take- I get it, myself worked up, Colin, sorry. <laughs> if, we, if we take it away as a, um, we put it into a sort of like a business perspective, we'll forget uh, for a moment, the sort of social benefit that's bringing. It's effectively a franchise sales model that you're actually operating here from the center. And so for the countries that want to get started, um, how does that process normally work? How, you know, let's uh, maybe use Egypt or, or Thailand as an example. So if anyone listening to this now or, or later actually wants to get in contact, what do they need to do? Uh, I'm gonna give you a two part answer. Um, the way that it's worked so far is that we work with a, with a partner, with one of our customers that wants to be able to exhibit to the world that they're launching an ecosystem in a country. That was Egypt for us. That was Henkel. Henkel stood forward and say, here, we're going to have a five-year agreement. We're going to agree to buy the material. We're going to fund you to go into that country. And each of those locations that you open up, which we're committed to hundreds of them, will all be branded. They'll have the communication. They can send their staff. They can send their customers. They can do all kinds of things. So they have full access, all the branding, all the right, all of it. So that's beautiful. And that's what takes us into a country. Then we build the ecosystem. We have extra materials, which we sell to other customers. Powerful. It's really beautiful. So take that same paradigm. If someone wants us to come into a country, it requires funding. So if someone needs to have to commit to that, it's incredibly inexpensive. Come into a country, launch the ecosystem, participate in buying the material, participate in enlivening and ending poverty, participate in being an economic development opportunity for all of society. And then and we come in and we start to work with local processors. Like if there's a recycler, someone who flakes the material or pelletizes the material, we look for other industry partners who might be able to use the material locally. We look to see for society and which organizations, institutions are trying to support collector type communities, who's trying to you know, support education or, or you know, servicing the poor. We work with them. We create a, a system that they all get to participate with. They all get to benefit with. It's really just putting dots together, putting, you know, putting everything together and, and, then, and then launching. And you open one location, then you open many others. It seems to work out fairly successfully. It's what we did in Brazil. It's what we did in Indonesia. It's all of it. We just open little locations. Very inexpensive. In Indonesia, we opened up locations. We started off in Bali. And in Denpasar, we opened our location next to the largest public market in Denpasar. 
So the largest public market where all of this, not all of it, but much of Denpasar would come, all the locals would come to do their grocery shopping. And then over the course of time, because we would flyer and communicate, people began bringing their bottles. They were like keeping their bottles and they were bringing it to us because they got an extra few dollars or pennies to go grocery shopping. Okay, that's not hard to think. I mean, we just got to keep figuring it out. I, I don't have every answer, by the way, Colin. I don't know. I'm just like some dude trying to figure out something big in the world. Like, I don't know. I have no idea. There's no, I know, like, it's got to be this way. Like, oh, man, like, I don't know. We just figure it out. Like, but that made a lot of sense. It was like, and that was like one of our staff, like, oh, the market. People come to the market. They're buying and buying and buying. This is where the locals need the money. Oh, that made sense. Okay, great. Super. And then all of a sudden we're having people bringing us material all the time and it became regular. And then some of those people went to look for more material because for them now it became free money. It was really beautiful. I, I use the, I use a, I take it from a parable, but it's like walking over a field of diamonds. If you're walking over a field of diamonds and gold and rubies and everything is like, Oh wow. Wealth beneath my feet. You want to pick them up, but you all, oh, well, hold on a second. I, there's no bank. I can't take this to any bank. I can't put this into an account. That doesn't exist. There's no store. No store takes gold and diamonds or rubies. No one would even barter with me. I mean, they sit on the ground. They're worthless like rocks. It's diamonds and gold and rubies, but it's worthless because you do not have the opportunity to exchange it. There's no monetization of that material, so thereby it's worthless. Just like diamonds today, they're only worth what they're worth because there's a system of exchange. That's what we do. I don't I. I, I to ask a question towards the end but i just want to uh, to go back you said it doesn't take a lot of capital to go and get that set up typically what are the uh, those first uh, customers that you call um yeah. i'm assuming these are going to be the uh, the guys that are doing a, a huge amount of manufacturing and distribution and they're therefore effectively buying their forwards of, of pellets how much are they typically putting in to get something started that, that's going to make a difference on a country level yeah an, an economy to start us into an economy is around two million euros that's, that's, that's tiny. It's tiny. It's nothing. It's nothing. And if you consider the amount of countries in the world and what's required for us to create this in the world, it's nothing. It's nothing. I, it's around a penny a bottle. In my imagination, I, I was thinking tens, maybe hundreds of millions there. <laughs> yeah, right? Right. Well, we need to create something that, that reduces, that eliminates all barriers. We recognize that what I need to do is create a feedstock of material. In the end, we benefit from transacting the volumes of material we collect. So it's ultimately kind of a, a you know, cost to create model where we go in and then there's the, you know, really it's an annuity for us because when customers buy the material, they commit to that volume of material plus more. Once it engages their brand and once they've made a brand promise to their consumer that this bottle changes the world, when will they stop? Will they at some point say, yeah, you know what? We know you love our brand. We decided to kill the world again. Not going to occur. So we build it. We build an annuity. We build a subscriber. We build an ongoing recurring revenue model with our customer. Okay. Makes sense. And to do that, I've got to return the lowest cost material possible and have the lowest barrier of entry possible. That's the way that this model has got to be. And I anticipate as an entrepreneur, smart guy, been around the block, that I know I will have competition. So I'm now creating my platform that the entry, the ability to compete with us is going to be difficult, but I'm inviting it. And in competition, the only way that someone could compete with us in the world is when they show up into our community and they pay the poor more. That's going to be the competition. The competition is going to be more money in the hands of the poor. And that's a win for everybody. How many people have you got collecting at the moment? 
We have around 20,000 registered members. We're affecting around 85,000 people, their lives, their families, everything else, set aside school, set aside everything else. You know, and it's just really, it's just the beginning. It's not much, even though the revenue is not much. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't much. About that. I don't know about that. Others can decide on that. How many people have you actually got as kind of full-time employees at uh, Plastic Bank? We've got about 150. So that, that's a staggering number for me. I mean, this is, this is a typical kind of Silicon Valley, um, you know, scalar model where somehow you've managed to keep the number of full-time, you know, headcount at such a low number. Well, presumably, especially over the last couple of years, we're starting to see that scaling, um, both in terms of tonnage that's going through, revenues, and how have you done that? Well, you know, I'm a big, um, you know, I, the Salim Ismail, great guy, also SU alumni, uh, wrote a book called Exponential Organization. Super brilliant guy, love Salim, super, super good friend. And um, I, I, you know, I'm a big reporter that, that his book, The Methodology, The Philosophy of Scale, Exponentiality, Outsourcing, doing as much, doing as, as, you know, gathering. It's our role to gather others to do the work we're doing. You know, it's back to the core value of it. Like if I want to make, if I want to change the world, it has to be exponential. It has to be a methodology. It's really about licensing what we do to others. You know, not necessarily, a, we'll call it a franchise, but that's the idea. So like every school manages its school. So once you educate, you know, a couple of teachers at the school and you go in, you know, our staff will spend a day teaching the students. Well, they created songs, they sing, they do some stuff. They do this whole thing. They go and they teach the parents and then we participate with that. But now the school becomes a location and we can manage through, through exception reporting, whether the school numbers are going up or down, why it's not, oh, here went down, go visit the school again. What's occurring? Oh, numbers are going up. Fantastic. So we work from exception reporting. So we build a methodology, we, we license it, and we have other imp people implement the process. Not, not so, not that, it's not rocket science. And that's the only way we're gonna make change in the world. And that is the supply chain. I gotta reduce our costs associated with returning material as well. So we can return a low cost material to our customer. I've, uh, I've failed some of our attendees. I've just noticed we've got two questions and the yeah. <laughs> really, really quickly. And then we've obviously got to get Mary Lynn back in. And there was another question I wanted to ask. So if I get it through it all, like Dion and Augusto, um, I'll have to, uh, I don't know, make it up, send you a coffee or try to get an answer for you later. But I'll try. Could you elaborate on the physical logistics? What happens after plastic has been collected? We communicated a little bit earlier. Once it's collected, it's segregated. So from, from the collection location, so that spoken hub model. So, okay, everyone brings it to this little hub. That hub goes to another hub where it may be further amalgamated, further sorted, more value. It could be bailed. Uh, and then it might have to be transported across, uh, you know, a province or something like that to another facility that pelletizes the material. And then it's, and then it's shipped. So it's very, very, really straightforward. People are looking for some sort of complexity, but it's not. And, um, and, and that's really it. And, and sometimes it's quite very simple. We go like in the Philippines and we, you know, we're working in the slums. It goes from, uh, from our collection locations in the slums directly to um, the processor. And, and then the processor, the benefit of the processor is the pro processor also has, they're also a participant in the application because the, the processor can now see all the collection locations and the volume of material that each of the collection location has. So the processor knows how much clear PET there may be. Other process may be you know, concerned about you know, just white HDPE. So there's a dashboard that they can see what volume of material is available. How might I provide an incentive to bring that back? We've digitized the supply chain. 
We are a pipe of material. If you want it to be in the essence of what we are, we've created the pipe, the conduit for material to be returned to whatever. Because even if someone wants to come in and build an additional recycling facility, if they want to work in paralysis, chemical recycling, anything else that they want to do, they can open their $50 million facility, but if they don't have the supply chain of material, they're aft. So we need to build a supply chain. What I'm working on is working on important, not urgent, important often eliminates, I would say always eliminates the urgent. Important will eliminate the urgency of, of plastic flowing into the ocean, the urgency of cleaning the ocean. That's what we have to eliminate. We have to eliminate the need for an ocean to be cleaned. We need to create the process, the methodology, so that it doesn't happen to begin with. That's what we work on. And that is that conduit. We are the supply chain. Now, from a business perspective, that's a win. Once we own the supply chain of material, I mean, you know, ultimately that's, you know, I'm building a business and, and it's not just plastic on, it's everything else as well. It's paper, it's aluminum, it's everything else we monetize. Certainly being the world's largest recycler is a couple of years away. That's, that's no brainer. Being the world's largest commodity broker, no brainer. That's occurring right now. And, uh, and it's big business. And, um, and if we're going to make any change, I mean, considering about $12 billion worth of plastic enters the ocean every year, we need to be in the tens of billions of dollars if we're going to make any change. Of course, we have to be doing that. Of course, we're a multi-billion dollar organization. Of course, has to occur. David, thank you very much. I'm going to give over to uh, Mary Lynn. You're on mute, though, at the moment. Ah, I'm not on mute anymore. Thank you. David, great, uh, great chatting. The things that really stand out for me are, you know, to really seek out opportunities and fixing the damage in the world. That was yeah. great. Um, and for me, the real value comes in closing the loop, you know, tying up all the different pieces of the process and creating the entire sure. ecosystem to extract the real value for all stakeholders. But as you said, the, the secret is the system of exchange. So I, for one, look forward to tracking your progress throughout Thanks. the African con uh, continent. Um, and more specifically in South Africa. I'd like to express my deep gratitude to you, David, for your time and the incredible insights this evening um, and to Colin Isles for facilitating the session. Thank you to all of you for participating in today's session. A shout out and special mention to some of our guests that joined this evening from Avis Budget, Ultron Nexus, Old Mutual Brawl, Old Mutual Wealth and SABC to name a few. Your time is invaluable, so thank you. Next week is our final episode, and we will be speaking to Busasiwe Mavuso, the CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, about purposeful leadership. So please make sure that you sign up. The success of this series would not be possible without you. So once again, thank you to everybody that's participated. Goodbye and stay safe. Thanks all. Thank you.